I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 11th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the opening week of the baseball playoffs, where the Red Sox and David Ortiz bowed out, the Indians and Blue Jays moved on, and the Cubs are maybe going to be okay or maybe not. Who knows? We'll also discuss the concept of locker room talk and what one talks about in a locker room. And Scott Price of Sports Illustrated will join us to talk about his new book about football and Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. It's called Playing Through the Whistle, Steel Football in an American Town. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Good hosting. Oh, thanks for entrusting me with the sacred duty of <laughs> Thank hosting you. this podcast. Thank you for passing the scepter back to me. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Also sacred. Sure. I like good hosting. To me, it's like a, uh, It's this isn't the case, but it sounds like it could be a phrase from a bygone era, an idiom of a distant time, like in Hamilton, uh, where they used to say, what, you mistake, well, what's the phrase they use? You mistake my intentions or something like that. Yeah, people don't have the etiquette when it comes to hosting podcasts that they did in the 1950s. Yeah. The podcast hosting mores, it's just it's <laughs> declined. In 200 years, though, people will look back on this time of podcast hosting. The norms. Welcome. Welcome to the show. So on Whimsy Watch, we got a submission 
from a listener with the following appended at the end in all capital letters. This confidential communication contains information protected by provider-patient privilege. So just keep that in mind when I tell you that the submission had to do with Aaron Rodgers' hard count. So please consult your doctor before uh, discussing Aaron Rodgers' hard count with uh, with anyone else. So this was from the Was Sunday it related to between... his hardened arteries? Was that the connection? <laughs> it was a hard count that lasted more than four hours. So you yeah. just need to <laughs> right. consult, consult. I saw, I saw him in a, in a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> so we have these two chairs that we're trying to sell, and they've been positioned like in our foyer living room type area where they're just kind of right next to each other and facing the stairs, both of them. And so they look like, the to me, the bathtubs from the Cialis commercial, that if you were sitting next to them, you would be in Cialis bathtub position. It just kind of freaks me out every time I walk past them. And that was just a little uh, digression. So from the Sunday night game between the Packers and the Giants, you may have missed it due to the simultaneous broadcast of the end of Western civilization. But here is NBC's hot mic, and NBC knows from a hot mic, uh, catching Aaron Rodgers at the line of scrimmage. More than double what the ordinary quarterback you have to cover. Hey, where are y'all going? 9-1. Where are y'all going? second and four. That is caught in between defenders, Devontae Adams. And he takes the ball into New York territory. And, of course, the whimsical moment was Devontae Adams not actually dropping the catch, which is something Devontae <laughs> likes to do. All right. Uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly will join us to explain what it was like to watch Michigan beat Rutgers 78 to nothing in the sport of football. There has never been a better time to be a Michigan football fan or to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Slate Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangupplus. Monday night's game between the Cubs and Giants had all the elements of a classic playoff matchup. Two great starting pitchers and Jake Arrieta and Madison Bumgarner, one of whom hit a home run off the other, which is maybe not a classic playoff element, but it was still very fun. Uh, there was also a late lead change, a dramatic game-tying home run, a game-saving defensive play, a walk-off hit for the home team in the 13th inning, and most important of all, the game took so goddamn long that if you had told me it was still going on when I woke up this morning, I would have believed you. Anyway, it was the Cubs and their 103-mile-per-hour throwing closer, Aroldis Chapman, who blew the lead, and the Cubs who lost it in the 13th after five hours and four minutes with a hit from Joe Panic. It was the Giants' 10th straight win in a playoff elimination game, which is nuts. And though the Cubs are still up 2-1 in the series, best of five series, the Cubs are also still the Cubs, and so perhaps there's some panic-induced panic going around in Chicago. How late did you guys make it with this game? <laughs> I made it uh, to the top of the eighth. Cubs three, that is, that's, Giants two. That's it not like, super impressive work, but I, res- I still 12, respect 15, it. Yeah, I went upstairs and I said uh, to my wife, who was still awake, there's no fucking way I'm watching the rest of this game. It's not going to end until about two in the morning. And I was I, right. And, and I heard already. When did it end? 
two in the morning. Still the morning. going on. I had already watched, or as they two thirty actually, or as they say in San Francisco, eleven thirty. I had already watched two playoff baseball games and one final two minutes of an NFL game in which uh, changing the culture was discussed. I saw Jake Arrieta line out hard to left after the home run as well, and I figured mm, I'd give him my best. I will say this: I would sign up for a playoff game between uh, where Bumgartner and Arietta were the pitchers, but also the only hitters. So all nine guys in the lineup <laughs> were both those guys. In fact, that would be the best game of baseball ever. And then you do the the imaginary runners. He's got to yeah, come ghost back runners. and hit if he gets a single. Yeah, ghost runner, yeah. Yeah. We call them imaginary runners. Or you make Javi Baez runners. run for everyone. Yeah, ghost runners is definitely the, uh, the common parlance there, Stefan. Really? Well, maybe not in the 70s, Josh. So, but maybe not in the seventies. So well, the Bumgarner ghosts were alive beat, then. You have to realize they walked the earth. Bumgarner, Bumgarner beat the Mets, Mike, in the in the wild card game. The uh, uh, he had a shutout. What's his name? Gillespie hit the home run off Familia in the ninth inning. So the two kind of big themes of the playoffs so far have been critique of manager bullpen deployment, and yes. that was definitely the case. Mm-hmm. In uh, the Cubs game where Aroldis Chapman only had uh, one two-inning uh, two save in his career, Joe Madden brought him out in the eighth, and he he coughed up the lead. Um, and also kind of ace pitchers not living up to their ace-dom. Bumgarner did in the wild card game. He did not really in this game three. David Price has been really bad. Sort of what, what is, um, have you thought about the pitching and the managing thus far. Pascal. The team, the teams that won didn't have aces who collapsed, like John Lester uh, in the first game for the Cubs, and Arietta was good. I guess Kershaw's a little bit asterisky because he wasn't that good, but Scherzer wasn't great either. Yeah, so I puzzle at the question is, and so does everyone, obviously, in Red Sox Nation, is David Price simply a bad po- postseason pitcher? Uh, there's so much evidence that there's not such a thing, but I, I think there maybe is such a thing. And when they signed him to be, I think, the third highest paid player in baseball after Kershaw and Greinke, you know, it's like, well, good, we have him for his 30 starts if we could get that out of him. But he's going to suck in the postseason, right? And then they get to the postseason and he sucks, which is why a best of five series doesn't make that much sense. Although, you know, down 3 nothing, what are the Red Sox supposed to do? Although if anyone can do it, it's the Red Sox. I would say, though, that the management of the bullpens in general, and also there was the use of uh, Kenley Jansen in a move that was uh, first guest on the MLB network, one of six networks who are broadcasting this game. Oh, it's so unusual for a closer to come in on a, in a situation in which he's not closing and he promptly gives up a home run to Worth. But the thing is, closers are used differently in the postseason. And whenever they are used differently, it's easy to say, well, that guy was used differently. He's not used to it. I would say the legitimate criticism, I mean, no one has not made this criticism on uh, Showalter's decision to not use Zach Britton. That's totally legitimate. It makes no sense. But asking excellent pitchers to do a little more than they've usually done or to do things in unusual situations. I mean, this is what sports is about in the big moment. And sometimes you ask guys to give a little extra. And I understand pitchers are finicky things like Italian sports cars sometimes, but that doesn't always redound on the manager. It just could be a Roldis Chapman not doing the job. Certainly there's no reason other than mental that Kenley Jansen, uh, well, the physical execution of the pitch, but you can't say that it was a bad move to bring in Kenley Jansen. I think you should say that it was a bad pitch that Kenley Jansen made and not a managerial misstep. 
Back to the starters for a minute. Jason Stark had an interesting piece on ESPN that gets into some of this. He's, he noted that David Price, Max Scherzer, Rick Porcello, Hugh Darvish, Cole Hamels, and Rich Hill were 0-6 in the postseason after going 93-35 and in the regular season. And he talked to a pitching coach who... Why doesn't every pitcher win every game? That's, it doesn't make any sense. Against teams who make the postseason <laughs> after yeah, pitching yeah. hundreds of innings. <laughs> but what, what a pitching coach that he talked to pointed out was that maybe the deliveries of the pitchers are a reflection of their character and their physical and mental makeup so that – That sounds bullshit. Please it, continue. It does sound bullshit. That's why I'm going to continue. That pitchers who have a smoother delivery – like Madison Bumgarner, do a little bit better in the postseason, or at least are prone to do better in the postseason than pitchers like Kershaw and Price, who are more herky-jerky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the coach is arguing, according to Jason Stark, that their deliveries might not be made to order for this time of the year because that voice in their head, that motor in their veins, and that thumping in their heart are driving them to rush, to lurch, to go faster in games where mm. nothing is more important than the ability to mm. stay slow and under control. Personality just might be overriding their delivery. Motor in your veins mm. seems like a, a good Tour de France yeah. uh, cheat yeah. that we're going to see in 2017. I, yeah, can that I just say that like that a, does sound like bullshit, but I think it might be true for a couple guys I can think of. Like Roger Clemens would get so pumped up that his uh, motion and his delivery was a little bit different. And maybe to say that it's not completely plausible or possible is to say that athletes aren't affected by moments that pressure and intensity and a different kind of crowd and the knowledge that there's much more riding on an individual game don't affect performance and they do affect performance. Yeah, and how Roger Clemens' career postseason ERA is three seventy five. It's uh, it's not as good as his uh, his regular ERA playing against uh, better teams. Must be the herky jerky thing. Yeah, God, that is so. That, that is such bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard anything less convincing in my life. Um, but structurally, the postseason in baseball, it's different than in the other major sports that I can think of. And that, you know, the way that you reflect in terms of your coaching or managing or your playing, that it's the playoffs is you play guys more in basketball, for instance. In football, I don't know. You don't really do anything different. Um, but baseball, the way that the games come at each other, you know, comes back to back, um, the difference between the languorous regular season and the really compressed elimination game postseason requires pitchers in particular to just do things that they're not um, expected to do. And the fact that, as I kind of <laughs> alluded to earlier, Guys who are really good are going to lose, and so you just end up reading mm-hmm. stuff into that. You're setting guys up to fail, for sure, but you're also setting guys up to succeed. And so as these people sort themselves into buckets, then you just get these ex- post facto explanations of, you know, it's because this guy grew up on a farm, or it's because this guy like is left-handed. And maybe some of them make sense and some of them don't, but I don't feel like we have enough data to really, you know, with the sample sizes here to really know. And so it just goes back to like what your biases are and who you, you know, 
I don't know. That, that's all I got. Yes, in general. But I think if you look at a guy with a decent enough sample size who really seems to have a statistically significant aberration, like David Price, I think you could find some things. I don't know what the things are. And people have been looking. And I've heard explanations from trying to be too perfect and his grip on the fastball and his you know reliance of two seamers versus four seamers. I don't know if it's any of that, but it does seem to me that there's something there. Whereas, you know, just saying that, you know, Rich Hill or Cole Hamels or a guy, Rich Hill didn't even get bombed, but, you know, Cole Hamels got bombed once and, you know, past postseasons he hasn't. I subscribe to your notion, but it could be possible with some of these guys. So I would say, I would say two things. Just by random chance, even if it wasn't anything to do with skill, you would expect on the bell curve certain guys to be terrible right. and certain guys to be great. But then that um, wouldn't then be predictive have, for the next time. And so like coming in with David Price. Well, like, Cole well, Hamels, for example. Uh, yeah. Cole Hamels is the counterexample, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Barry Bonds is a guy who was terrible in the postseason until he had like the greatest postseason in the history of any sport. Right. So David Price, I, I would not be surprised if David Price threw like three shutouts in the – playoffs next year i mean maybe maybe that would be very surprising i I I could see i I could see the argument i do wonder with the with the relievers whether having a more flexible mentality the athlete doesn't benefit him in the postseason and doesn't benefit the manager in terms of how he uses them and i think if you look at cleveland and the way that terry francona is willing to use andrew miller uh he brought him in in the fifth inning in in game one i think Brought him in in the sixth inning yeah. uh, on Monday night, yep. I think. Yeah, the fifth inning was the earliest he pitched since fifth inning his was first one, right. year in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. And he pitched into the seventh that day, had three days off, and pitched two scoreless innings on Monday, the sixth and the seventh inning. But that wasn't just Francona saying, all right, we got to do something different because it's the playoffs, and oh my God, we don't have many games to win. It was also the fact that Andrew Miller, throughout his career, said, I'll just pitch whenever. And that's what he believes, whereas Aroldis Chapman, Wants to pitch the ninth inning. Well, I'm and, sure that Francona also is a more flexible thinker than, say, Buck Showalter proved to be in the wild card game, where Zach Britton didn't even pitch as the game meandered into extra. Well, maybe and that lost. Maybe that's the the thing is that Joe Madden has always in his career been a flexible right. thinker, and you want the manager and the player to be aligned in their thinking. That seems important. But then also, Mike, uh, as you might recall, the Mets lost the World Series last year, and Familia blew all these saves mm-hmm. when. He got like ground balls that like Daniel Murphy couldn't handle, or uh, you know that just happened to find a hole. He didn't yeah. pitch badly, yeah. Right. So and even though all and, and, these kind of confounding yeah. and even variables. though David Price didn't get past the fourth, you know he was mostly uh, exploited. I mean, he gave up a home run, but the guys were on base because of uh, ground balls, and he has a bad BABIP this year. So yeah, I'll concede all that. So. One final thing that I think is interesting, kind of back to the aside that you made about the games being on six different channels. It's been really hard to like find where the games are and the Cubs obviously are a story of huge national interest. The Red Sox always are. The Indians, I think less so because the Cavs won the championship and just like I feel absolute uh you know, no interest in the drought of Cleveland baseball <laughs> fans, just less than zero. Um, it's a long drought. But yeah. there is this balkanization in baseball that we've talked about before. And, you know, I think the fact that they put every game 
on a different network is good for the local fans. Like, and I guess, but but isn't that also kind of a sop to the fan who wants to watch every game? Um, just having, you know, one game on at four, one game on at six something, one game on at nine thirty. It just seems like they're kind of walking this, you know, pat- narrow path in between acknowledging that this is a local sport and a national one, and it's not really doesn't really feel satisfying to anyone. I mean, obviously it's, it's nice for the West coast fans to have the game started. Yeah. I don't know. And I think baseball, which has done a a terrific job in terms of monetizing uh, the digital realm. I mean, baseball has been terrific about, I mean, their revenues, they were the, you know, the first and smartest to find ways to deliver the product to fans on a media that they wanted and that they would pay for. And I think that's the strategy that they've pursued with the playoffs. It's that we want everyone to have access to every game. I mean, look, you could just go to MLB.com and figure out what network everything is on, but I'm too lazy to do that too. So I have a sort of a a cycle of which network do I try to look at (laughs) first to see if there is a game on. Um, I tend to start with TBS and Turner first. (laughs) Is that the lowest number? Yeah. It's the the lowest number. Uh I can never remember the numbers for Fox Sports 1 and 2. And I always go to ESPN in the middle. But baseball, the interesting thing there is that the baseball is like way less progressive on social media than the NBA is. And so if you're watching the games or kind of half paying attention to them, you're not going to see the Jake Arrieta home home run on Twitter. They don't allow people to post vines like the NBA does or or other kinds of videos. Which is, which is especially insulting as regards Wrigley Field. But I find that uh, from a, what you were saying, from a branding perspective, it's a terrible way to... You were talking about uh, toggling between it being a local and a national game. I think they're making decisions that prevent it from being a national game. And I think mostly they're doing it because all these different networks enrich them the most. And that's fine if that's their sure. pri- priority. But they're not growing it in a way where you know where to look and, and complicating it. You, uh, Stefan, you said something like, you could always go to MLB if you're not too lazy. I don't know. Especially with rainouts and different start times. I mean, there was a time when I looked and it said that it would be on the MLB network. I, I think I thought I said that. So I went to the MLB network and it said baseball, but there was no baseball there. They were just doing highlights. So I'm like, I guess the Cubs aren't playing today. Maybe it's a rainout somewhere else. And then on Twitter, Chris Hayes wrote Baez. I'm like, well, he's watching the game. So I've had to figure out where <laughs> Fox Sports 1 is. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not even, there's like, you know, on my cable system, a bunch of sports channels in a row. And then a hundred numbers past that is Fox. So what I'm saying is much as Jackie Robinson was a pioneer who had to overcome a lot to enjoy baseball, so did I with watching it in the postseason. Of course, Mike, when your copy of TV Guide arrives on yeah, Thursdays, everything's right. fine. Yeah. 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 Any thoughts on David Ortiz? No? Bye, Poppy. See ya. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. I, no, that's I, not fair. No, that's totally fair. I love is it, him. How did you feel about Adieu, Poppy, on the cover of the Boston Herald, which is a reference to Hub fans bid kid adieu, but also seems to imply that David Ortiz is a francophone uh, baseball player. Yeah, I, think I that th- didn't really know where I felt, fell on that. There is a tissue-thin difference between a literary nod and something that no one will understand. <laughs> the Boston Herald is generally not, not really... Uh, it's a people's paper. Yeah. It's <laughs> so an odd decision. Yeah. People, people speak French. I think that what we just what we <laughs> just Southie. did was a, the most fitting tribute that David Ortiz will get. That's yeah. our that's our gift to him. That's why he got into this game. 
<laughs> We've also got a rocking chair here for him if he wants to come by and pick it up. I do, Poppy. I do. <laughs> Josh has two matching love seats that are shaped like Cialis. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is red. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Friday, late-ish in the day, the Washington Post and David Farenthold got the scoop of the election. It was a tape, a hot mic situation from Access Hollywood circa 2005. Donald Trump talking to Billy Bush on a bus. Let's listen to one of the relevant excerpts, which you've already heard, but you're going to hear it again now. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. <laughs> oh, Billy Bush, he annoys me. All right. So this is it. <laughs> go, go, go on, Donald. Tell me more. <laughs> Uh, that, that's going to be haunting my dreams. Uh, <laughs> and your 9 a.m. Right, on the Today Show. Yeah. Let's uh, listen to how Donald Trump uh, explained that behavior in the debate on Sunday night. You called what you said locker room banter. You described kissing women without consent, grabbing their genitals. That is sexual assault. You bragged that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly, I'm not proud of it. But this is locker room talk. You know, when we have a world where you have ISIS chopping off heads, where you have, and frankly, drowning people. That is very good decision to just kind of uh, pot that down right at the ISIS chopping off heads. So, uh, Mike, you've... Uh, talked to people before yeah guess where <laughs> you had a, you've, you've done it in a professional setting you've uh-huh. done it in a uh gym yes so i guess i guess one way to frame the conversation or to start off is that the locker room it doesn't necessarily mean literally a locker room i think a lot of people have taken it that right. way and right. athletes mm-hmm. have responded and said we don't you know discuss these things necessarily in a locker room. It's obviously kind of a stand-in for just dudes being dudes, whether it's in a frat house or the back of an access Hollywood bus, a bus, you know, a water treatment facility, wherever it is that men congregate. Um, But Mike, you're a professional talker. You've spent a lot of your life talking. You're in a fraternity, Uh I believe. Yes. A fraternal organization of men. Tell us what you talk about with the menfolk. Well, we talk about the spider 2Y banana, but that's the locker room talk we give in for. You know, I was uh, on Saturday, so this broke Friday. So Saturday, 
I went to a free training at the uh, CrossFit near my home, and it was okay, but <laughs> there was a locker room there, and people were talking about the Trump tape in the locker room, and they were saying, I've never heard anyone talk like that, which is probably true. So the like the locker room talk is you talk about, oh, reps and sets, but when men are talking among men, among their brethren, there is more frank sex talk just because of the rules of decorum. So the rules of decorum would say you would perhaps not speak frankly about members of the opposite sex with members of the opposite sex present. This has been going on for years. But so how far do you go? How far do you go released from the shackles of womanhood, if you are a man, in talking about the women? You don't go that far unless you do those things and are a sociopath. So in general, I think that the uh, locker room talk uh, explanation is inadequate. And yet, I do think that I'm experiencing almost a little backlash to the backlash, which is I guess we're going to get into all the athletes who are saying this is horrendous, this is appalling. I've never heard anyone talk about forcing themselves on women. And if they did, I'd walk away. But if that's true, like, why is no New York Knicks standing up and saying, I can't play with Derrick Rose? You know, why when all these players uh, go in, uh, are accused of or confirmed to have committed sexual assaults, we don't see an exodus of their teammates. What we see is a circling of the wagons and, you know, he's part of our family. So it's a, maybe a little different from talk. Maybe they're saying if someone put themselves so out there, we would look at the talk ascons. But when actual horrible things are done to women, I don't see too much evidence of the locker room behaving, you know, as you'd want to in the ideals, if it's true that this is such disgusting stuff when uh, uh, a teammate actually commits a rape, where's the outrage? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Mike. And I think it is important to draw this distinction between the idea of language and the effects of language and the reality of behavior. Uh, Vice's women's issues vertical broadly last year put together a list of 44 NFL players accused of sexual or physical assault against women. Um, we have spent years now discussing Title IX and sexual assaults and on-campus rapes um, and the prevalence of it at universities. So what's threatening about Donald Trump's language and the attempt to normalize it or dismiss it by saying, oh, this is just something that boys do in locker rooms, is that it validates behavior. Um, so when someone, you know, subhuman form like Trump is saying that I do this, you know, what do people hear? What do people who are vulnerable? What do people who are impressionable hear? And those people aren't, you know, Chris Cluey, who can write about it on uh, on Vox, which he did over the weekend, and defend the conversations in locker room or any of the many other professional athletes who have come to the defense of themselves and their peers for the conversations they have. But the reality is, yeah, there's a coarseness. I spent a summer in a locker room. Um, one of the scenes I write about in A Few Seconds of Panic is when all the rookies had to stand up and tell jokes in front of the rest of the team. There were no women in those rooms. Every single joke, except for the one I told. Um, <laughs> Were, were, were. That's why they didn't let you kick a field goal in a real game. We're homophobic, sexist, (laughs) disgusting, bodily fluids, every bad word that you can imagine. What was your joke? My joke was about it was it was a light bulb. I told a bunch of light bulb jokes. (laughs) Uh huh. (laughs) Thus endearing you. How many? How many offensive linemen does it take to change a light bulb? bulb? And the answer was what? Yeah, they. they, It was okay. I got some laughs. (laughs) Mostly because the last joke made fun of Mike Shanahan. (laughs) 
How many light bulbs does it take to fuck another light bulb? <laughs> I right. moved on that light so- bulb like a switch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, the thing about locker room talk, the way that Trump tried to explain it and rationalize it was basically this is how people talk in every locker room. And I think the important point to make is not all locker rooms ah. because I haven't read all of the stories by NFL players, but I was just looking at Sally Jenkins' piece in the yeah. Washington Post. And the thing that's missing from Sally's piece is Miami Dolphins, Jonathan Martin, right. Richie Incognito. And there is a dynamic that can exist when you have, let's say, a Richie tr- uh, Incognito slash Donald Trump and you have, you know, a, Donald Trump's a lot of Richie Cognito, a lot of Billy Bush type characters in the locker room <laughs> that there can be an incredible, like toxic, absolutely horrible environment that is created. And that's what happened with the Dolphins in the bullying situation. It's they're just always constantly stories about hazing. Google high school locker room rape, which I did over the weekend. <laughs> yes. I am glad that you did it. So I don't have to do that. Then did but, you acid bleach um, your browser? <laughs> it's it's a thing that um you know can totally go off the rails depending on who the leaders are depending on what the you know coaching situation is where some talk um and you know whether it's debasing or debasing in a particular way can turn into something a lot scarier mm-hmm. and more menacing and Another point about locker room talk that I haven't seen, and again, I haven't read all the pieces, is that's why that you know a lot of players don't come out is because of the environment in locker rooms, and not just in the NFL and a lot of different sports. That it's not always the like nicest, safest place to be. And right. again, this all goes back to um, you know Trump trying to say this is normal. And this is how all men are. It's like, no, this is how some men are. And that's why it's horrible for men and women when they're in that environment. Right, because it is threatening. It's like Trump standing two feet behind Hillary Clinton during the debate. It is threatening. (laughs) And that language is threatening. It legitimizes. Stick to sports, Stefan. um, The kind of, you know, possessive, acquisitive, threatening language and conversation about women. And as we've said, it normalizes it. And that is the risk. It makes people uncomfortable. And athletes are sensitive to that. You know, Richie Incognito was a jerk of the highest order, but he had some psychological power over other people in that locker room on that team. And so the kind of language that can be deployed in those situations can have a corrosive effect. Here's someone else talking about what happens in locker rooms. Quote, if someone witnessed a rape, the team has to be unified, not just in the locker room. It's society too. You can't just say, that's my teammate having a good time because a lot of guys forget who they are once they're out of the locker room. If you take that locker room mentality and stick it together, then I think you'll have a lot more positive outcomes. That was Ray Rice talking about locker rooms and the conversations and behaviors that emerge from them. That was a little like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Yeah. You don't really usually get that on this show. Uh, Although usually it's Abraham Lincoln. And now you know. It's either Abraham Lincoln or Ray Rice. Yeah. It's like if you always guess C on the standardized test. And that man who returned that fob 13 miles in Springfield, Illinois. Yes. (laughs) Has this, Mike, made you think 
anymore or differently about how you talk to your dude friends? No. Or your sons? No, it hasn't. It's made me think about what an outlier Donald Trump is and how all the excuses that he's given don't resonate with me in any... uh, like this is an excuse, but it's an excuse that doesn't resonate in any way. His excuse was his excuse was essentially this is the kind of talk that occurs in a setting that wasn't this setting, if you really think about it, and also ISIS. So it doesn't really do much. I haven't really thought that much. You know, the the one thing that I do sometimes think about when we talk about women in sports is that all these athletes, they just you know, they maybe if they have a nice long career, they retire in their 30s, early, mid 30s. They just have never dealt with women as equals in a professional capacity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much gender inequality in sports in positions like coaches or referees or really positions where there doesn't need to be. I mean, on the f- physical playing of sports, of course, there's going to be gender differences. But why there, is there one coach in the NBA? It's not because only one, well, sorry, one female coach. It's not because only one of the, I don't know, 200-something assistant coaches it's not only because women, uh, only 0.5% of women could possibly fill those roles. It's because the entire culture of sports is so male dominated. You don't think about women as equals or real or anything other than maybe people to market to or sleep with or, you know, uh, if if they're your mom, pretend to uh, be in a soup commercial with. And, and not only that, it's the message that comes from most professional team administrations to players. The idea is to isolate players. And Nate Jackson talked a lot about this um, and and his experiences at the with the Broncos, in as much as management doesn't want you to interact. You know, Nate talked on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about how management doesn't want you to interact with the rest of the building. The rest of the building is where women work. Management wants you to come in in the morning and at seven o'clock in training camp or whatever time during the season and work until you're dismissed. And then go home and have no distractions. And that does limit the kinds of people you interact with. It specifically limits the number of women that you interact with. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. In January 2011, Sports Illustrated's S.L. Price published a piece in the magazine headlined, The Heart of Football Beats in Aliquippa, Hope and Despair in a Pennsylvania Mill Town. That mill town is where Mike Ditka, Tony Dorsett, and Darrell Rivas grew up and where football is still at the center of the community, even when everything else seems to have crumbled around it. Five years after he wrote the original piece, Prices expanded it into a book, the title of which is Playing Through the Whistle, Steel Football in an American Town. There's an excerpt from the book in Sports Illustrated that we'll put on our show page. Everybody should check it out. And that excerpt begins, the children being born then after the Jones and Lachlan steel mill died would live unburdened by the knowledge that the town had once been anything but sinking. Maybe that was better. Remembering could be a curse. The generation that grew up with dads hauling themselves off to work that witnessed Aliquippa's meltdown couldn't help but dwell on the better days. Some got stuck there. S.L. Price, Scott Price, welcome. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. And you uh, were in Aliquippa for not all of these five years, but a lot of uh, a lot of time, and you kind of got a sense of the place now, and you really got a sense of what the place was back in its heyday. So, can you kind of um, describe for us what it would have been like to go, let's say, to an Aliquippa high school football game in the fifties, and then what it's like in two thousand sixteen? Well, you know, in 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 the fifties, I mean, the the mill was running three shifts a day, three hour, eight hour shifts. And, um, and every time a shift got out, uh, on Franklin Avenue coming out of the tunnel downtown, um, you know, there were, there were wives who were waiting for their husbands to steer them home if they could and, and make sure they didn't spend their money in the 35 bars downtown. Um, and, uh, and the rest made it to, to the bars to, to sit down and relax uh, after a really brutal day in the mill. Um, and high school football then was massive. Um, it, it's still massive. The, the, you, they'd turn out four or five thousand uh, to a game, um, especially against arch rivals like Ambridge and, and Hopewell. And um, it, 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 it was certainly a center of the town, but it was not the only preoccupation of the town then. I mean, it was it was emblematic. It was it was where people came together to celebrate. But um, the town was in in in, in a certain form of equipoise. I mean, there was balance. There was there was work. There was school. There was there was the use of football as a as a tool to get to college, but not necessarily an end in itself. And these days, um, you know, it's much rougher. The Franklin Avenue downtown is has been hollowed out. The mill shut down for good uh, in 2000, but really the the guts of it was were torn out in 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 the mid 80s. And um, there are a lot of boarded up buildings. There's a beautiful library downtown that that remains um, uh, sort of a jewel and, a, and an oasis. And on Friday nights, um, the pit, which is which is an oddly named place because it, it, it's sort of wedged on the on a hillside, one of the higher points in town. But you do park above it and drop down into the stadium. And and the visitors' locker room was known as the dungeon. Uh, I don't think it's even used anymore, but part of it, part of the stands, this is a WPA project um, from the 30s, from the Depression, built in less than a year, um, and, it's, and it's obviously seen the, the wearing of time and, and, and age, and, and some of the bleachers are closed down, and, and the, the dungeon, the visitor's locker room is shut down at this point, um, but it's still an absolutely gorgeous place to see uh, a football game, um, one, of the, one of the prettiest sites for a football game you'll ever, you'll ever find. Uh, the crowds are, are much sparser, and, and and up under one of the one of the buildings, there's a place for the old steel workers that, that who still come out. Um, uh, I would say about a dozen or so. The numbers are dwindling. Who come out still every Friday night to to support the Quips, and 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 the stands are get full for certain big games, but it's not nearly as bustling a situation as it once was. Um, and in many ways, the football team has replaced the steel mill as. And, and, and certainly the odds are far more stacked against anyone getting a good life through the NFL than through a steel mill. Uh, but the examples are there, and, and football is central to the town at this point. Scott, this started as a football story for you. This is a town that, that was tiny, I guess 30,000 or so uh, population at its peak, down to about 9,000 now, but that over the decades produced players like Mike Ditka and Ty Law and Darrell Rivas, not to mention... Sean Gilbert. Sean Gilbert, yeah. right? Um, so it started as a football story for you. 
and it was going to be a football book about this small town and the, 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 its ability to produce this outsized number of great athletes. But it turned into something much bigger. I mean, this is a massive book about the sweep of 20th century American history, really, about labor history and race relations and immigration and decline. Yeah, I, I, I mean, fairly quickly, what I, what I didn't want to do was write uh, a season in, in the life of, 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 uh, of a team. Uh, I, I will say it's a wonderful um, narrative construct. It, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, and, and it, it sort of allows you to shoot off into different, different directions. But I really very quickly realized that, I mean, this town is important in, in ways that go beyond uh, football, and that's what made it fascinating to me. It is emblematic. I mean, I mean, a lot of towns have, uh, you know, had uh, race problems. Aliquippa had 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 race riots. A lot of towns had uh, drug problems. Tony Dorsett's nephew was running the biggest uh, crack ring in town, and and the drug ring was busted by uh, by a DEA um, uh, operation spearheaded by a by a former Aliquippa quarterback of uh, the mayor of the town. Uh, his sister was—he's uh, a former player, and his sister was killed by a member of the 2003 uh, state championship team. Uh, football and crime have sort of blended together, and and in many ways, like going again, going back to the 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 theme of of, of 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 sort of how it follows America. I mean, not only were were all these great athletes from from there, but also Henry Mancini and. Uh, one of the great uh, art directors in film, Joe LaTerry, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Um, uh, the song Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, which we all know from the early 70s, was written by uh, a guy in town during the race riots, a teacher who was accused of starting the riots. And meanwhile, uh, the Wagner Act, which legitimized you know unions in, in private corporations in America, uh, the Supreme Court's test case was, was based on, on the Aliquippa 10 and the J&L steel mills fight against unionization, often savage fight. So, so the idea of labor and, and race, and, and meanwhile you have the great migration of blacks coming up from the south and, and the eastern Europeans coming in. So in, in many ways this, this, this town summed up a lot of, of not only of, of American history in the last 20th century, uh, but also what we're dealing with today, which is sort of the end of work for a certain class, uh, working class, Americans are, are having problems finding with the foothold uh, in the country these days, and uh, you know we're dealing with the sort of residue of that still 30 years on. And um, Aliquippa is where it all happened in, at its, at, and I would argue it at some of its sharpest points. And by the way, this book, just as it's a sociology and the story, uh, there are so many tendrils that you couldn't even <laughs> trace down completely. But if someone wants to familiarize themselves with the life and work of Dr. Melvin Steeles and his brother Mervyn Steeles, who are the guys who wrote that Spinner song you were talking about, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, do you think football is only a bomb, only a escape, an escape they need in some ways? Does football for this town these towns, but you you could talk about specifically this town. Is does football have a um, negative side that they rely on? And I don't know. You you answer the question however you can. Is there a negative to any of the football and the emphasis? Well, I mean, thereon? in the sense that the odds against anybody making it to the NFL, as we know, are are, are incredibly high. The odds against it, and and the fact is, is that almost in the sense. I mean, there are, there are four 
peewee football teams in, in, in Aliquippa, four different age groups of, you know, 40 kids on each roster and a waiting list for all of them because of Mike Ditka, Darrell Revis, because of Ty Law, because of these examples of you can make it out. Not only can you make it out, but you can make millions and become famous. And that, that's the other thing. I mean, I, I, I wasn't making my point as clear as I'd like to early on. Aliquippa sort of takes everything to the extreme. I mean, in those other areas I mentioned, but also when it came to football, Western Pennsylvania's chock full of great football players. Mike Lucci across the across the river at Ambridge, but he's the only like great Hall of Famer from Ambridge. There, there are Hall of Fame greats out of Aliquippa, one after the other, and still today with with only thirty boys in, uh, or so in the senior class of. Uh, uh, at Aliquippa High, they're still producing Division One uh, football players at Pitt and West Virginia, and so this record of success is great. But then you have kids who are where 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 once someone like Ditka would use football to get to school, get an education. At least that was the intention. And yeah, he, he wanted and to be a dentist. He right? wanted to be a dentist. Exactly. Now there's just sort of this drive toward I, you. You got to play football because you got to get to the NFL. You got to and and a lot of guys are not finishing school they're coming home a little bit early they're not getting their education or going if they don't get into a great premier d1 school you know going to a, a middling school and getting an education isn't that attractive so the downside is that is that football is is sort of the has become this incredible beacon of success but as you guys well know and as i know i mean the odds are are very tough if you can use it as a tool to get out great if it is the only route out there's going to be a lot of a residue that's uh, not positive for the town. That does seem different, though, from, you know, Friday Night Lights, Odessa, Permian, and the 80s, where the Buzz Bissinger thesis, which is very convincing, is that football was actively making things worse. Right. So I guess kudos to Aliquippa for that. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I, I mean, the, the point is, I mean, keep in mind, the surroundings are are worse. These mill towns that were left behind. See, there's the Pittsburgh miracle, you know, of of recovering from the end of the steel industry. But Pittsburgh yeah. had health care. Pittsburgh had the universities. Pittsburgh had this, these incredible bones and a, and a wonderful, uh, you know, city uh, that that could bounce back and the beauty of it. And and it's just a, a lovely place to live. These mill towns that were created solely for steel are ne- replicating uh, that economic models is almost impossible at this point and and their future is truly up in the air and so shrinkage and decline is is almost inevitable and the football team there because of the tradition of greatness a great players now equip so many forget the professional players d1 players came back to coach in Aliquippa and still coach today. Now, a lot of them are, are, are also police and sheriffs and detectives, but they've got like 20 guys on the, on the, uh, 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 coaching staff there who, and, and, and an entire superstructure of families around them demanding this quality of football to continue from their kids, from their, from their nephews, from the, and so the fact is, is that the, coaching staff is keeping the standard high and keeping this place as a community center in many ways but it's it, it's only in in relief against this horrific backdrop of of economic decline that makes it as positive as it is it still seems remarkable in reading your book just how many great players came from this tiny place. And that might just be a statistical anomaly, or it may have something to do with the the circumstances. 
and the environment. Um, what, what do you what do you come away with? I mean, how do you explain that you know, there are yeah. Hall of Famers from this little town? And now, it's really it's really. I mean, I went there saying, you know, the, the easy thing was there's something special about this town. I want to find out how it's special, and that I was able to do. Why it's special? Why? I mean. There's so many things that happened, um, in, like I said, to the extreme there, and and it part of it is geography. You had you had the town split up into twelve plans, and and each plan was an ethnic group, and and blacks were allowed to live here, and 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 the rich lived in uh, the the middle, you know, the middle management lived in Plan Six, and they were considered the cake eaters, and then you had the Serbs over here and the Croats here, and there was a competition between all of them and teams in every single section, and. Eventually, they would all, you know, feed into the high school and and black, white, everybody play together long before, you know, Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, uh, integrated baseball. Aliquippa football was integrated in basketball. And they, uh, you know, that was more important, even with all their tensions, um, was was kicking the crap out of every other uh, town in the area. Now, all these other towns have the same model. So mm-hmm, yeah. so I can only go so far to say why Aliquippa and I don't know if it's because not just of that competition, but there was this incredible tension between J and L, which is the steel mill, and the cops uh, in uh, their cop, the company cops, and the rest of the town. So there's this this sort of um, this incredible rebellion against authority, and they won. The the union was strong there, so there's this incredible pride that was baked in, and um, it it just I and then and then once one got out, like Ditka, who was sort of the ur aliquipan and not only that but but just the ultimate sort of working class uh intense football player um run, literally run through a wall you know almost and and basically the standard was set through Ditka and all these other people were uh then dedicated themselves to upholding that standard and again not necessarily positive ways what i mean is Ty Law was telling me, I mean, if you lose in that town, your family is going to just come down on you like a ton of bricks. You know, there's just, you know, you suck. You guys are no good. How dare you lose? I mean, there wasn't like the massage of, hey, don't worry about it. Go get them next time. There was a real high standard set there, and, and anything less than meeting it was, was met almost with contempt. Yeah, and the guys that you mentioned, I mean, there are high schools which have put a lot of players into the NFL or professional leagues, and sometimes they're athletically gifted players, and sometimes they're a tall quarterback. I'm talking about public high schools, not matter day in California. But all those guys are of a similar type, which is, I'm not saying that Daryl Rivas isn't physically gifted, and yet everyone will say, that guy is the toughest, hardest worker on the team, and the same is absolutely true of Mike Dick, and the same is true of Ty Law. So they don't just put players into the NFL, they put captains into the NFL, and it seems a bunch of guys with the requisite physical skills to play in the NFL, but of course the thing that made all those players legitimately great players... uh, isn't the physical skills? No, and I and I will tell you. I mean, Ty Ty Law told me, you know, when Belichick would get on him, he'd he'd almost laugh at him. He's like, like, <laughs> like, 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 this is all you got. Like, this is you're bringing me this. I've been hearing this since I was ten, and 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 so there is a. Uh, uh, not only a, a, a toughness that is demanded, but you're right. There is a leadership quality there. Um, that he, I will tell you, there's something about Aliquippa that I that I can't quite explain, and I think part of it is that everybody has gone through this, these incredible tough times. Um, but there's just no BS. I mean, I, I've never been in a place um, 
uh, or rarely been in a place, certainly, where, where, I mean, you know, Bill O'Reilly's, you know, no spin zone. I mean, everybody has knows somebody who's been in trouble, who's been through tough times, who's, who's knows somebody who's gone to jail or has a brother who's, who's been in trouble or, or been, been dealing product somewhere. And, and as a result, and everybody knows everything about everybody. So, so the sins and the, 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 the pluses, and the minuses that, that adhere to everybody and some try and cover up there, they, it's almost celebrated. As, as Mike's Mianic said to me, here in Aliquippa, we don't stab you in the back. We turn you around. We stab you right in the chest so you see us coming. And, and they're just, there's just a, a fierce pride there. And it, and, it, and it adheres and it remains even today. And, and this year, look, like, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, I mean, I don't even know if we did mention there two, two Aliquippa football players were arrested the date of the publication of this book for, uh, you know, allegedly killing a, a, an alleged pot dealer who, who came to town. And meanwhile, the team has been dealing with uh, one of its running backs, you know, had a remission, uh, um, a recurrence of leukemia and, and another uh, player uh, committed suicide in the summer. And uh, meanwhile, uh, one of the teammates of, of Revis, the quarterback of his town, was uh, a Purple Heart winner um, uh, quarterback, was, was found dead in, on the, in the street in Aliquippa. So they're dealing with this spider web of crime and, and, and sort of this seep all the time. It does not stop at the, at the field house door, and yet they continue to churn out title after title. They've, they've got 16 WPIL titles. It's a record, and they're having tough times this year because they've, they've you know, this is a Class A school that moved up last year. Uh, it was a Class A school playing AA, and now it's playing 3A. So they're, they're adjusting. But it's, it's, it's just remarkable to, to watch them continue and endure. The book is Playing Through the Whistle, Steel, Football, and an American Town. The author is Scott Price, although on the cover of the book it says S.L. Price. Same guy. Scott, congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Now it is time for afterballs, and sometimes you just see a story, and you know that's what you're going to call your afterballs that week. This is Eddie Matz and ESPN. Back in August, a brown cardboard box filled with custom-made T-shirts arrived in the Washington Nationals clubhouse. Backup catcher Jose Lobatone eagerly walked over to the package and sliced it open fully within his rights. I really don't know what that means. After all, the he's shirts the were his idea. He's slicer. <laughs> <laughs> he designed them. He ordered them. He paid for them. He lifted a tee out of the box and unfolded it. He held it high up in front of his face and smiled with satisfaction. Dark Heather Gray. The shirt was dappled with red, blue, and yellow ink. What a lead this is. The same colors as the flag of his home country, Venezuela. Right, can I stop you there? He's opening up a box and pulling a shirt out, right? <laughs> but just as important as the motherland was the mantra, recta carne, Spanish for fastball meat. <laughs> this is the... Uh, the slogan of the Washington Nationals uh, clubhouse. How did the 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 English, which came first, 
It was a saying that arose organically, as is wont to happen over the course of the eight-month Petri dish. Locker room talk. (laughs) The English one came first, followed by the Spanish translation. Is is, 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 uh, is fastball meat sort of like mediocre cheese? (laughs) I think think fastball meat and mediocre cheese will make an excellent sandwich. Mike, what is your fastball meat? As of this recording last night, Coco Crisp put one over the uh, Green Monster, thus launching the Indians into the second round. Now, I think the baseball cognoscenti love. There are a couple basic kinds of players that they love. Uh, they, they like guys who are good to the press and ha- seem to have good personalities. But in terms of their game, it strikes me that the people who are maybe stats geeks or uh, kind of the the appreciators of the deep cut baseball player will either like a guy with a huge deficiency in his game, like Benji Molina and his inability to ambulate, or a player with almost no deficiencies in their game, a player who could do everything pretty well. And I think Coco Crisp is the kind of player that people who know and love baseball just really love. He does have that good personality. He tries very hard, but he's got this amazing blend of speed and power, not so much of either, although he says he's extremely fast, but he doesn't steal a lot of bases by strategy and for other reasons. But for instance, he once very much objected to the time he had on a baseball video game because they rated him as an 80 or something. And he saw players who had more stolen bases were rated as a 90 something in speed. And he knows he was faster to them uh, down to first base. Therefore, he said he stopped playing baseball video games. They made him too slow. But of course, the most amazing thing about Coco Crisp is that he's named Coco Crisp. Now, how did he get named Coco Crisp? It seems like his real name is Covelli Crisp. Seems like pretty obvious. I mean, if your last name is Crisp and there's a serial connection out there, you're going to take it. But in an interview, he got into more details. And what he said is when he was little, Coco Crispies came out and he looked like the character on the box of a Coco Crispy. So if you know anything about me, you know that I'm a huge fan of cereal. And I said to myself, well, I know Cocoa Krispies have had a few spokes mascots over the years. So I was wondering which which mascot of Cocoa Krispies, because they've had many, was he named after? Now, keep in mind that he was born in 1979. And among their mascots were Jose, a chimpanzee named Jose, who was quickly replaced by Coco the Elephant in 1959 when Mexican-Americans complained. I hope all right-thinking Americans would complain about a chimpanzee named Jose. Snagglepuss was the spokesperson, the spokes mascot. Og the Caveman took over in 1968. This is still nine years before Coco was born. Tusk the Elephant was the mascot from 1971 to 1982. I even remember Tusk the Elephant and his jingle. I could do it from... <laughs> memory. It's time for Cocoa Krispies. They are so chocolatey. And when I get a taste of them, I trumpet happily. Is that what the Fleetwood Mac album was named after? Yeah, it was. Elephants, large ears. Then they went with Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Then they went with Coco the Monkey. And now Snap, Crackle, and Pop have returned. I. It is still undocumented. And someone needs to present all the different cereal boxes to Coco to say exactly which one inspired the big ears that gave you your nickname. Have you ever made uh, Coco Krispies Thanksgiving turkey legs, which I'm no. looking at right now on no. mommysavers.com? Tell me. Just roll those turkey drumsticks in a big old pile of Coco Krispies, Mike. Oh, that's great. That sounds amazing. Even the milk turns <laughs> chocolatey. Yeah. Kids are going to love it. Stefan, what is your fastball meat? 
A couple of years ago in this space, I talked about the great Roger Angel of the New Yorker. The occasion was Angel, 93 years old, finally being honored by the Baseball Hall of Fame. But I was more interested in Angel's affection for a particular word, which I first encountered in his essay on the 1987 baseball season. Quote, the semi-anonymous fifth-place Pirates were in fact a rising inspirited club by the end of the season, he wrote. But this sort of anarchic downthrowing of a champion by some sans-culotte band is standard September melodrama, of course. The lowly, tattered-demalion Mets used to do it all the time, and I can still remember how much fun we had back then when defeats almost went unnoticed and each little win was like a party. The word wasn't down-throwing or sans-culotte, you might remember. Those are pretty great words, but it was tatterdemalion, a person dressed in ragged clothing, being in a decayed state or condition, broken down, dilapidated, beggarly, disreputable. The OED dates it to 1608 from tatters or tattered. The malian or demalian part is unexplained. I use the word a couple of times as a personal homage to Roger, once in my football book, once on Slate. When I talked about it in 2014, I discovered that Angel had used it in the magazine first in 1973, also to describe the Mets. And he had used it more recently in 2013 in a post about Mariano Rivera's last game. Then last Thursday, Roger Angel did it again. Good night, Mets. We'll miss you. The tattered Demalions lost their one-game wildcard playoff to the visiting Giants 3-0 last night and drifted home their season done. I swear I bolted upright in my chair. Roger Angel is trolling me, I thought. The Mets weren't just tattered Demalion. They were the uppercase tattered Demalions. I decided to rewrite the afterball with Josh's permission. There is a version posting on Slate. And then I decided to call Angel. We had met a couple of times, but I have no idea whether he recognized my name. In any case, he told me he didn't remember ever using tattered Demalion. Totally plausible. I mean, he's 95 and he's been writing for the magazine since 1944, so he's written a lot of words. When I then rattled off citations like some fanboy, Angel replied, I didn't know someone would be out there keeping track of my usage of a word over the years. Ouch. I think he might have been genuinely embarrassed, though, to have used an unusual word frequently enough for someone to notice four times over 43 years. It's not that frequently. Um, still, Angel told me, I've got to stop using it. It's off my list forever. Now, the last thing I want to do is be responsible for breaking up Roger Angel and Tatter Demalion. I begged him not to dump this gorgeous word, his use of which has meant so much to me. And finally, he said, it's a great compliment, I guess. All right, after I hung up, I did a full search of the New Yorker's archives, and guess what I found? In 1978, in his annual spring training opus, Angel described, quote, Bill Vex, tatterdemalion free swingers in Chicago. And then in 1980, in his annual postseason recap, he mentioned A's pitcher Mike Norris's, quote, tatterdemalion major league record. All right, so that's six times in 43 years. But still, Roger, please don't stop saying tatterdemalion. Please. Josh, what's your fastball meet? Thank you, Stefan. So we were remiss in not wishing everyone a happy Columbus Day. It's the reason we're recording on Tuesday this week instead of Monday. So I have a Columbus Day message for everyone from a former LSU football coach, Les Miles. Let's listen to that. Good afternoon. Just want to remind everybody that it's Columbus Day, that uh, all those of you that no Italians and like Italians are the people that might venture onto a ship and travel 
to explore and find new lands, uh, this is your day. So uh, um, it's not St. Patty's Day. It's a, that's a different day entirely. He's right. It's a different day. There's nothing in that clip to argue with. This is your day. Les Miles has traveled to distant lands, and I know everyone's been waiting for three weeks for my thoughts on Les Miles' firing as LSU's head football coach. So here they are. He was a good coach. He was an amusing coach. He, was a, he seemed like a good man. There's some positives. There's some negatives since he took over in, in 2005, right after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, all the way through the uh, 18 to 13 loss to Auburn that led LSU to fall to two and two on the season and led to his ouster. But I think, you know, some people got a little bit caught up in the fact that they fired him midseason. But I would argue that this is the most, one of the more sensible coach firings that you'll see. Les Miles had a really good run. LSU. They won the national championship in 2007 in his third year. They made the national championship game again in 2011. Uh, they lost that title game, you might recall. And then they've kind of gone downhill since that 2011 year. Records are 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 8 and 5, 9 and 3, and then started this year 2 and 2 with maybe their most talented roster ever in his uh, tenure. And there was talk of him being fired last season, but they gave him one more shot, came back. He uh, did not replace anyone on his offensive staff, and they had the same sort of philosophy. Wasn't really working at the start of the year. Very disappointing start, and he was let go. He doesn't really seem to be bitter about it. Fans seem to be kind of pleased that he's gone, but also uh, you know willing to acknowledge all of the great things that he did. So everybody's happy, which I think is always the case with college football in the South. But the one thing as a fan that I think outside people don't really understand about Les Miles is that he has these two sides of his personality. He's at once the guy who will talk about sailing to distant lands, the kind of goofy side. And then that manifests in games where people would refer to him being kind of the Mad Hatter and always going for it on fourth down and faking field goals. But at the same time, he had this incredibly conservative in-game philosophy, just ran the ball to an extent that college football teams no longer do, playing a very kind of um, three yards in a cloud of dust style offense that's very out of fashion these days, but also very con conservative in a more macro sense, like not being willing even when his job was on the line to bring in a more modern offensive coordinator. Um, he had Cam Cameron, former NFL guy, and he just ran the same offense this year that they were criticized for last year. And that was one of the big reasons that he got fired. So how does that make sense? How could one guy uh, manifest both qualities? And the explanation is, in my view, that the kind of crazy on-field stuff that he did, the fake field goals, the going for it on fourth down, the things that, you know, the wacky decisions. My view uh, that I developed over time is that it was out of desperation when his more conservative style didn't work. And that was just more evidence of the problems 
with the team is that, you know, when they were criticized this year and they came out um, against Mississippi State and they just started throwing like reverse pat, they threw multiple reverse passes in the first half of that game. They had no middle gear. It was either just run the ball and do like very basic play action passes, just incredibly simplistic offense. Then when that didn't work, they just had to do like literal trick plays. And there are all these schools around the country that where it just seems incredibly easy the way that the game is today to just like have guys just like running open all over the field in the passing game, whether that's, you know, what Houston does or what Louisville does or even what how Alabama has been able to change and adapt. But LSU, with all the talent they had, always made it look very difficult, even in victory. And so that was the frustration from the fan base. That's the reason why when things weren't necessarily going the way that Les Miles wanted or the fans wanted, they would run trick plays or run kind of unexpected crazy calls. Um, And that's why I think it'll be good for the team to have a you know, a head coach, offensive coordinator who can kind of understand how the game works circa the 21st century. And that was very sincere. So it's sincere analysis. Yeah. Only a month late. Where's he going to coach next? I saw somebody make the uh, argument. I think it was Stuart Mandel said that Penn State makes sense for him just because it seems like things are not progressing as quickly as they might have hoped with James Franklin. You think he'd get a hire that prominent? He wouldn't have to go down to a Louisiana Lafayette? (laughs) That was the argument, is that if he gets a Power 5 job, which seems unlikely, that would be one of the few places that might consider it. He's how old? 63? I think he's in his early 60s, yeah. He can always have a home at Rutgers. The the most likely outcome is that he will not, is that he'll go into broadcasting. And that he will not get another head coaching job. Or if he wants, it'll be a, a lower division job. Yeah. Or just, uh, you know, Grand Marshal yeah. of the Columbus Day Parade. He could do that. He could. We'd love your feedback on uh, Les Miles's coaching tenure and his future job prospects. Uh, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember, Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 